Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, if you are here for your first time, uh, if you look underneath uh, the seats there, there is a Bible there for you. If you were already here and you're taking another one, um, know that they're not free. Amen. 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 We have a giving portion of this. You can feel free to support the ministry. Uh, If you take another one, they are $5 a piece. Amen. Amen. Um, But we really do want to acknowledge that um, as believers, God calls us to be people of the book. He calls us to know his word. God is not hiding. He has revealed himself so that we might know him more. So we ask that tonight that you would hold to the scriptures and learn of him. We'll talk second uh, quickly about the, the context of the book we're looking at. The book of Hebrews essentially is a book where you had a community of people. They were Jewish, but they were living in the area of Jerusalem, which is the city of David. This is essentially the pinnacle of Jewish thinking. If you were a Jew, this would, the place, this would be the place that you would go to live amongst your people. Now, there in this place, you would also see the temple. You would see priests. You would see all that is within Jewish living and thinking. And because of that, many of these Jewish Christians started getting distracted from Jesus as being Messiah. In addition to that, they had to deal with the mere fact that their friends were now persecuting them. Their family was now distracted by their faith and were now disowning them. The tribe that they came from now wanted nothing to do with them. These Christians were being persecuted. They were confused. And slowly but surely, One of the things that the author of Hebrews has to deal with is these believers wanted to stop being identified with Jesus. And what the scripture says is that they began to drift away. And what we'll notice today is that the drift that happens was not just a drifting away from the people, but also a drifting away from what they initially believed. Now, here... The scripture says in Hebrews chapter two, verse one, it reads this way. In fact, why don't we read it together on three? One, two, three. Therefore, lest we drift away from it. So notice what he says in the first part. We've got to pay closer attention to what we've heard. So the scriptures would have been read in front of the public so that everyone would take it in. And he says, we've got to start paying attention to it because if you don't take in the details of it, you'll find yourself drifting away from the people, drifting away from the knowledge of what you once had. The the word drift away is like something slipping out of your hand where at one point you had a strong grip on it, but slowly you lose it. This idea of drifting 
It is this imagery of being together in community and knowing the same things about Jesus. But something happens in your life and you all of a sudden, you don't have that same fervor you once had. You don't have the same beliefs you once had. And the antidote to drifting away is community, is being together. And drifting is not for the person who walked in here tonight and you're feeling ashamed because there's something you said or did. Drifting is a part of us all. We all can drift. Uh, Robert Robinson, he penned the hymn, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. And he says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness like a fetter bind my, listen, my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We are prone to wander and there is no amount of knowledge of God, seasonedness in Christ that exempts you from drifting. The power of the drift is within us all. And that's why we need community because we can drift into beliefs and we can drift into a life that we never thought we would be at. Gene Veneer puts it this way. He says, community is the place where we discover our own fragilities, wounds, inability to love, where our, our limitations, our fears, and our egoism are revealed to us. We cannot get away from the negative in ourselves. We have to face it. So community life brings a painful revelation of our limitations, weaknesses, and darkness, and the unexpected discovery of the monster within us. Everyone is patient by themselves, right? I, yes, I am kind to the three friends I text all the time. Yes. But community is something far different. I am, I am, and I mean this with all my heart, I am honored to be the pastor of this church. I really am. I am proud to be the pastor of this church. Because one of the things that I believe is unique about our church is I would say we are not just diverse. I would say we are global. There's a difference between being diverse and global. Diverse means you have a lot of different types of people in the room. Global means you bring a worldwide perspective into this place. People have experienced Jesus in all different types of ways. People have had all different types of encounters and you cannot get them away from the encounter that they've had. All different types of education in this very room. And globally, we come from all different types of spaces. But even with all that, we are prone to our comfort zone, prone to drift into cliques, prone to drift into the people I already know. I don't want to do all that. I don't know you. I, don't, I just kind of want to be with the people I know, I know, I know. I just want to be with the people I know, I know. And I don't want to have to do that consistent work but you have to understand, when he says prone to wander, it means we're prone to settle into doing what we already know. Anybody in here like Snapple? Amen, amen, I'm a Snapple fan. Amen, Peach. Thank you, Peach. Amen. 
Snapple, if you read the Snapple, it says shake well. Shake it up. You need to shake it up. And then it says, because the contents settle at the bottom if you don't shake it up. What it's getting at is, if not shaking, the contents of that drink will never be what the designer and the creator intended it for to be. And when we are not shaken up as a community, we settle, we fracture, we click up into the people that we know, I already know you, I'm already comfortable, and we settle into our own spaces. And I'm not saying settling is a thing for some, I'm saying settling is what we do as humans. And so if you were to understand the nature of how community works, the, the Bible says in John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And I praise God that we have a community that is so diverse. I literally, within the span of a month, will have people I sit down with and they're like, listen, our worship is good. I mean, it's good. I mean, we're at a six, but I believe we can be a 12. I mean, I believe we can be lit, lit. Okay, I mean, there are some people with hands up, but I mean, I'm saying, I'm, I'm waiting to see, I'm just waiting to see the angels descend. Amen? Come on. Like, and there are people who are like, there's so much more in Christ we can be, right? Then there are people who, like, you got your hands lifted up. They're next to you like, are they okay? Like, they're, they're totally uncomfortable with, like, exuberance, all right? And so the reality is that, when we say worship in spirit, oftentimes it's understood as having this intuitiveness, this connection to God. And worshiping in truth, it means we want to know the concrete realities of who God is. We want to know theology. We want to exegete the text. And so the nature of our community tends to be where we want more prophecy, more miracles, more deliverance. And then we want more exegesis, more truth. And when we fracture and settle into our camps, I do not believe that's what God intended us to be. I believe God has intended us to worship in spirit and truth. And so as a shameless plug, this is why city groups are so important to us as a church. City groups, and when we, when we say we are city groups, this is when we have 10 to 20 people within a community going through the scriptures together, loving each other, knowing each other. But a challenge that we had in city groups last semester is something that we've got to rectify this semester. One of the challenges that we had is that people had a tendency to test a group, almost like a group was a menu, where they were like, ah, this, this, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is for me. I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm really getting it. I don't know if this is for me, but this is for you, because that's where you are, but that's not for me, you know? And what would happen is people would kind of, kind of do the rounds. But the problem is, is that we couldn't really commit to each other and really know one another. And the goal of our groups is not for you to increase in knowledge, but for you to increase in love. That is the goal, that you would increase in love. That is what God is looking at, your love, that you would know God and you would be, he'd be known through your life. The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it was a community, a high spiritual community. 
And they were into speaking in tongues. And praise God if you speak in tongues. If you pray in tongues. I pray in tongues. And it is one of the most beautiful gifts that God has ever given me. But the scriptures say, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues. And then he says, this is what he says, and an outsider or an unbeliever, will they not say, are you out of your minds? He said, I don't even know what y'all are talking about. What did she say? I don't understand it. Right? So they are confused because they can't hang on to your high spirituality. And the same thing can happen with theology. You want to break down every Greek word. You want to break down every term. And the new person, the non-believer is like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't grow up in church. I'm not from this country. I'm not from this area. I can't hang on to your highness. And what, the, what, what he goes on to say, when he speaks of this idea of prophecy, he doesn't say that prophecy is intended to be prophecy, prophetic, like speaking the future, like foretelling. But prophecy in terms of foretelling, that would be taking the scriptures and speaking them into one another's lives. Speaking the truth into one another's lives. Sharpening one another. Blessing one another. Encouraging one another. Exhorting one another with that truth. And when that happens, he says, verse 24 of 1 Corinthians, he says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsiders enters, he's convicted by all. And this is what it says. He is called to account by all because everyone in the room is speaking the truth of one another's lives, speaking the truth of God in one another's life. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. And what happens when we group together is the Holy Spirit wants to speak. And he uses the truth of God's word to speak into each other's lives. And he convicts. Can you remember the last time you were like really convicted in a message? Like whoever was talking to you, like, who told you? Like you're looking at them like, oh, okay, I know who told you. They're they, they a liar and a cheater. I'm going to smack them up when I get out. Like you, you knew they were talking about you. Like you know that you know. And, then, and this is what it says. The secrets of his heart are revealed. Because it's not just truth. It's spiritual truth. And the person is convicted. They, they can't help. They're like, who, who is doing this? And we're all like, we're just talking about God. God's the one that did it. And that's how our groups are spiritual places. I want to say this to you, the person that is seasoned in Christ, you know your Bible. To you, the person that you've had incredible encounters with God, you've seen the miraculous. To all of you that are more mature, don't think you can't drift too. You can be here today and be drifting. You need to be around naive Christians. You need to be around immaturity. You need to be around people that are babes in Christ. You need that. Because the nature of your walk is God has not set this up as a school, it's a family. And you never have passed 101. You still need the basics. 
And you still need to be encouraged when you see that person grow. So no, you might walk in and they're not, they're not saying things. and It's not popping. But the spirit of God in you is popping. You bring that to the table. And you love on the people that are in the room. Love on the group that God gives you. Instead of trying to find the group that's cosmopolitan or like you, find the group that's not like you. Find the group that you're going to say, I'm going to settle in and love these people. That's what we need, church. I'm, that's what I'm asking of you. We are going to be making calls this week for city group leaders. I'm asking of you. Lead with the gifts God has given you. Serve the people that God has placed here. Every week, I get the incredible opportunity to go to Backstage Pass if you're new here. Today, would love to see you back there. And when we go to the back after church, yo, people are all over the map. All over the map. There's people here with like degree degrees, like degrees on degrees, like real spiritual. Then there's people like, yeah, I Googled it because you know I'm saying I'm just here. I just I'm just here. Like people are just like everywhere in here. And the the sovereign God of the universe set it up like that. Your click can be dangerous to you. Because sometimes your click is really a reflection of you. But it might not be a reflection of Jesus. Because Jesus is global and diverse. Jesus is always bringing new babies in. Jesus intended us to be a spiritually diverse place. And if you only get with the people that are quote unquote where you're at, you might not be at the place you think you're at. And so what I'm trying, here's what I'm just trying to encourage you. I'm not, I'm not, here's what I want to encourage you to. We're prone to this. This is not, this is not like a you thing. This is a us thing. We're prone to this. All right, about five minutes of that was free. I didn't even tend to that. So where, where this group, where this group started to go, all right, where they started to drift away was their beliefs about angels, and their beliefs about angels was very much tied into what was called Gnosticism. It was about having a higher knowledge. And they believed that spirituality was akin to having a higher and higher knowledge. And they would connect this high knowledge to this group of angels that you could be connected to. They were connected to this group called aeons. They were somewhat like angels, but they were all part of this thing called the pleroma or the fullness. It was like this pantheon of spirituality that you keep climbing up. So they felt like you go higher, higher, higher in spirituality. So in other words, to be more spiritual is to go higher. And so what the author of this text is attempting to do is to not just refute, but to help them clearly understand who angels are and who Jesus is. So in verse 14, jump down there in your Bibles or on your phones, or you can look up here. Hebrews 1.14 says, are they not all, in reference to angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit 
salvation. Look at the last part there, speaking of salvation. So he's talking specifically to a group of people that have given their life to Christ, been drawn to Christ, want to know God more. He uses this idea of an inheritance, meaning that this is bestowed upon you. And he is saying that those who have had that pull of you want to know Jesus more, you've had an encounter, you've had an awakening of who God is, and that was bestowed on your life, just like Peter, Simon Barjona, a flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. If God has revealed himself to you, it means, therefore, that you also have ministering spirits accompanying God's aid in your life. In other words, for those that are saved, there are angels assigned to your life. Angels, therefore, are ministering spirits who serve the Lord. And they follow whatever God wants to do in your life. They're there to help make that happen. What we understand about angels is that angels essentially are constantly worshiping God throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament. Angels are, as it says, ministering spirits. So they're non-material, uh, invisible beings. They're spiritual and immaterial. Angels, we understand, are, uh, they have an emotion and they have a will and they have intelligence. But at times, we see in the scriptures that angels can take physical form. Now, one thing to note is that angels throughout, you know, the New Testament and the Old Testament, when people like get a glance of an angel, it's not like, uh, you know, if you've ever seen like, you know, angels where it's like, like, like this dude from like Nebraska who's like real fluffy and like he's like real like, you know what I'm saying? Like he's like real gentle spirited and all that. Like these people are scary. Like these people look like they could hurt you. And whenever you see an angel, somebody gets in front of an angel, they start to fall and worship. And they're in shock and they're in fear, all right? So one thing to note is that angels aren't soft, amen? But the other thing to, to acknowledge is sometimes they too take material form. Hebrews 13 and two says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know what that scripture says? That scripture says there was a time where someone helped you out and you said, hmm, that must've been the Lord. It was the Lord and it was an angel. It means that angels have helped you in ways you have no idea. And angels have served your life for those that know God. Psalm 91, 11 says, for he will command his angels concerning you to do what? To guard you in all your ways. Think of all your ways. Think of all of your life, the full circumference of your life there are angels assigned to your life. So where you have an assignment from God, you've also been given assistance from God. Angels are part of his assistance to serve, bless, encourage, and further the glory of God in your life. Think about this. God has given us Jesus to die for our sins. He's given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And he's also given us angels assigned over us to support our life and to bless our life, to guard our life. Romans 8, 28 tells us that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
Something has happened in your life where angels were the assistants. They are the agents of Romans 8.28. They fulfill God's assignment in your life. So the author here is trying to convince us of the presence of angels, but he's also trying to let us know and acknowledge that Jesus is not an angel, and we're going to get to that in a second. You know, I, one, thing I've, one thing I've, you know, in my walk with God I've seen is that there have been people who have seen demons, right? I mean, the seeing the power of demons, seeing demons. It's interesting because we talk a lot about demons. We rarely talk about angels, right? Like having seen an angel and things of that nature. And I don't really know why that is. If you've seen an angel, tell me about it. I'd love to meet him. I want, I want to meet angels, all that. But here's what the author is not doing. The author is not trying to get us to look for angels. The author is trying to get us to know that angels are real and angels are over your life, guarding your life. You should feel more protected from this text. You should know that God is overseeing your life, right? So God's got you is what he's trying to get at throughout those scriptures there. But what he goes on to say in verse four and five of Hebrews chapter one, it says, having become as much superior, now the author is refuting this idea that Jesus is an angel, that Jesus is a ministering spirit that Jesus is the same class as those angels, those ministering spirits. He's become much more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Verse six, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he would say, let all God's angels worship him. So he is quoting the Psalms here, trying to say, no, Jesus is not an angel. The angels worship Jesus, right? But there is something linguistically that he's doing here that is of the utmost importance. What he says here in verse four is that he has superior to the angels a name, right? He's getting at this idea of a name. Then if you jump down, he keeps on saying, you are my son. And then he says, he shall be my son. And then in verse six, six, he says, when he, his firstborn brings, when he brings the firstborn into the world and he invokes this idea of firstborn. So let me just kind of merge these two concepts together. When he continues to talk about a name, he's not just talking about the name of Jesus, the actual detailed name of Jesus. He's talking about Jesus as being a son. And what he's trying to get at is position. That God has given Jesus a greater position than the angels. A position over the angels. And so that's why he continues to hearken at this idea of a son. Yes, angels had names. You had Gabriel, you have Michael, you have all types of names. But he's not talking about the name as much as he's talking about the rank, right? Now, angels have rank rankings. You have seraphim and you have cherubim, and they're ranked in that sense. But firstborn is a ranking. It is an honorific title given. Solomon was David's 
firstborn, although he was the tenth born in the family. Firstborn doesn't mean the first one born. It means the most honorable one, the one that receives the greatest esteem. The concept is associated with receiving the entire state of their father. So then the firstborn inherits it all. It says in Colossians 1 and 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Speaking of the new creation, being a new creature. In, in Colossians 1.18, he'll say the firstborn of the dead. So this is the idea he's just trying to get at. Jesus' name is higher than angels. That's what he's really trying to get at. His rank is higher than angels, and he's far above it. Now, how then is it that Jesus is worthy of more honor than any angel? Philippians chapter two gives us this picture. It says in Philippians chapter two, verse eight through 11, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, oh, I'm sorry, uh, let me jump up to verse four, I'm sorry. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verse four. Let each of you, that's, that's it, I was like, I know I'm missing something. This is it. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I ain't got time to go into the depth of this text, but this book is about two people who had beef with one another. And Paul wrote this book for two women that were beefing with one another, two godly women. Uh-huh, yeah. And people were choosing sides amongst these two godly women. The whole church started to split apart. And so Paul writes this and he says, look, stop looking to your own interests, what you want, what, how you see things. And he says, you know what you ought to do? You know who was not thinking about themselves? Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Though he was God, he could have had all the chariots and his name plastered in lights, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't need the fame and acclaim in every moment. Verse seven, but he emptied himself. The word emptied is the word kenosis, meaning he poured himself out by taking the form of a what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men. So he says, don't look for your own interests. Be a servant like Jesus. Then he says in verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus descends on earth, born to a virgin girl who lives in Nazareth. He is born in a manger. He is born among animals. He is worshiped by shepherds. He is in the lowliest of the low towns. And he was the highest to be exalted and worshiped in heaven. But he brings himself all the way down And it is because of that, it is because he lowered himself and humbled himself and was obedient sacrificially. That's why his name is so high. Because of his sacrificial death for others. And it says he will be, his name will be exalted in heaven amongst the angels. It'll be exalted on earth amongst People and it will be exalted under the earth amongst demons. His name, his name will be cherished from every block and every neighborhood. They will worship the name of Jesus and they will bow their knee. And he has this name because he served all. And he died for all. Jesus then gives us the picture of not thinking of myself constantly, but thinking of others and becoming an other-centered person and living in community for the sake of others. Our problem and our challenge is that being known at a servant as a servant isn't good enough. See, if they say, you're gifted, that does something to you, right? That, that. Or you're famous. You're special. But when you're a servant, you are not known for your name, but you're known for meeting needs. You're known for caring for all and blessing others. And when you serve, when you care for people, when you don't drift into your comfort zone, but you continue to work and grow to bless others, it is wildly uncomfortable. How uncomfortable? To the point of death, he says. Jesus was obedient to death. It hurts. And that's what obedience does. Obedience hurts. Loving people Hurts, patience hurts, kindness hurts, bearing with people hurts, it hurts. And it is much easier to be with people you already know, to be with names you already know. but I'm so glad that I worship Jesus. Because 
If you were to meet people that knew me 20 years ago and they said my name, they would have never approached me about Jesus and they would have never approached me for Jesus. I was the person in the back that no one wanted to talk to. I was the person afraid to walk into the church because I had too much dirt. I was the person that sat at home every week and said, I gotta clean myself up first. And it wasn't a person that busted in my door. It wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. It wasn't anybody from a church. It was Jesus because one day he woke me up and then I wanted a desire to go and meet God's people. And I loved Jesus and I was wildly disappointed in the church because I found out Jesus is far better at pursuing me than people are. But then I started going to Bible study. I started learning the Bible. I stopped smoking weed, so that was helpful. Praise God. Um, I, I, I started becoming more obedient. I knew what to say. Like I knew, you know, there's certain moments to say the right, you know, amen. Oh, I knew what, I, I kind of got the rhythm. Like, oh, and then people started inviting me places because I started understanding Christian culture. And many of us, we invite people into our life because they are culturally Christian. That does not mean they know Christ, but because they know the culture. And there are people who can pass the test of culture, but, they, but when they get and see the Lord, they won't pass the test of Christ. And what I'm trying to say is, all, all this message is about is don't be clicked up this year. Be uncomfortable. You, the, the, the comfort zone isn't a zone. The comfort zone is your soul. You just want, we all want the comfort zone. I mean, I, and I am like you. I get into the Uber and the dude's like, hi. I'm like, look. We know what we're here to do. We got 20 minutes. We're in and out with this thing, okay? I don't have the energy, okay? I'm you. I'm you. I get it. I totally get it. I get into an elevator. I'm like, don't, don't. <laughs> I'm you. I get it. I, I get it. But I get the unique experience of getting a lot of stories. And it breaks my heart when I see a story over here that would bless a story over here, but they're too clicked up to learn someone else. What if... What if someone sitting by themselves wasn't normal, but it was an emergency? What if I saw someone? What if I walked into a city group and I didn't know anybody's name and I started working to learn names? What if Jesus died for the world and not just your clique? And what I'm saying is, is that Jesus... You, you, the, the danger of your clique is not just that you're missing the mission, but you could be floating to heresy. 
That's what this happened here. You, you will be surprised the things that you can believe when you just get isolated. And so that's what happened here. But you will also be surprised at how far sin can take you when you stay out of community. You will do things you never thought you'd do. Matthew 18, one through four says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, now literally there's a child right there. He says, become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You ever notice something in this text in verse two? He says, calling to him a child, he pulls the child over. Then in verse four, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child. Now, why do you think Jesus actually pulled the child over there? Well, some of you grew up like this. You see, children at that time were best seen, not heard. And children went unnoticed. And he had to get the attention. He says, look at this child. I know we haven't been, <laughs> we've been ignoring this kid. Look at this kid. Become like him. And he points to the child. And children... There's one thing that marked children of this time and in many of our homes is still the same. Some of you grew up like this to the point of your frustration. Sometimes I'll be sitting in my house, get tired, go to bed, lay down. At this point, I'm, I'm getting tired, but I get thirsty. And so I say, Leah, Leah's got to come out. She's got to get out the bunk bed too, so it makes it worse. She's like, huh? Go get me some water. She'd be like, but. Go get me some water. She'd be like, but you can. She'd go get it. Sometimes I'm sitting on the couch, remote, like right there. She like over there. I'd be like, man, where's the remote? I'd be like, Leah. She'd be like, huh? I'd be like, go get me that remote. She'd be like, give me it. Thank you. And it's all about obedience. It's not about preference. And God placed you in this church. And if you don't believe that, then you'll always wrestle with this consumerism of what you want the church to be or what other churches be. But if you believe that God placed you here, then there's gonna come a point where the Lord's gonna get you out that click. And it's gonna be like, hey, James, James, James. I'm gonna be like, huh? Go over there and talk to that person. Huh? Go talk to them. 
can't you do it yourself? I mean, you God. I want you to do it. You're my child. I could do it myself, but I want you to look like me. You do it. And God is going to convict your heart to love people more this year. And I pray that you would be great in the kingdom. And your greatness would not come because you are so gifted. I pray that we could break the yoke of that notion in the body of Christ. That greatness does not come from talent or gifting. It comes from a heart of humility and service. And when you have served greatly, everyone loves you. But you can be gifted in your clique. Own to yourself. And I pray that the spirit of the living God would break any kind of settling in our church. I pray that the spirit of the living God would shake us up so that we would not settle and that we would not drift, but that we would be together. Amen. Father, we love you. We can do nothing without you. We bless your name, God. We bless your name, God. We love you. And we ask that tonight that you would take us to that next step with you, God. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would shake us up. Shake us up. Shake us up. Teach us to love. Teach us to love, God. Teach us to love, God. Teach us to love, God. Teach us patience, God. Teach us kindness, God. Teach us obedience, God. Teach us your humility, God, even on tonight, God. Let us look not to our own interests, would pray, God, don't let me settle. God, don't let me drift. Shake me, Jesus, and make me look like you. In Jesus' name, amen. What if you stand with me? We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.